Thank you to Spark for being the presenting sponsor of African Tech Roundup's podcast mini-series on the entrepreneurial progress being made in some of the world's most vulnerable states. Spark is a Dutch NGO that bridges the gap between higher education and entrepreneurship in fragile and conflict-ridden regions of North and Sub-Saharan Africa and the Middle East. To learn more about Spark and the opportunities they're creating, visit sparkonline.org. That's spark-online.org. This episode features a candid chat with two remarkable entrepreneurs. The first is a second-generation Liberian cocoa farmer and University of Liberia accounting graduate who fled his homeland to live in the U.S. to escape civil war. But he has since returned to his country to found a company called Green Gold Liberia, which produces charcoal briquettes using organic waste. Now, Green Gold is determined to end Liberia's ecologically damaging reliance on charcoal production activities, which destroy the country's ancient rainforests. Also on the show is a Syrian civil engineer born to an entrepreneurial family. After completing an engineering master's degree at the University of Aleppo, he founded a steel structure manufacturing business called Al Maqsud in Syria in 2011, before being forced to abandon it a year later when war broke out in his country. He then emigrated to Libya, where he re-established his business, but alas, he was forced to desert the second factory he built and migrate to Turkey when Libya was gripped by violent conflict in 2014. Now, this determined gentleman has incorporated Al Maqsud for a third time in Turkey and is currently cultivating a solid business reputation with Turkish customers and many others all over the world. So yes, this isn't a show to miss. Listen in for fascinating first-hand insights about what it takes to achieve entrepreneurial success in difficult places and to learn why the world needs more true-to-life stories like the ones you're about to hear. This podcast was taped at the fringes of Spark's sixth annual Ignite Conference, a premier gathering of refugees, entrepreneurs, educators, private sector actors, government leaders, academics, and NGOs. This is an independent African Tech Roundup production. The opinions expressed by me, your host, and those of my guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the presenting partner, Spark. Hi, my name is Maurice Dogwa, General Manager, Gringo, Liberia. I'm truly excited to be here at the 2018 Ignite Conference. Yay! <laughs> Welcome. Uh, my name is Ayam Maksud. I am a civil engineer. I have uh, Al Maksud for Steel Constructions. And I came to Ignite to share my story to this uh, amazing conference. Thank you. Welcome to you, Morris, and welcome to you, Iham. Yes, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. So listen, you guys, I'm really excited because sitting with you, I feel like I'm in my element a little bit. I have a soft spot for entrepreneurs because I happen to be one. And I often find that when you are looking for an authentic opinion about a market reality, you're more than likely going to get it from someone who's in business, trying to make things happen, trying to, to grow an economy through employing people, by bringing to life ideas, and actually, you know, pursuing profit and finding great ways to leverage that profit to do other great things. So this, this is what excites me about entrepreneurship. I think people sleep on the role of entrepreneurs to uplift any economy, never mind fragile states, never mind uh, countries in developing parts of the world or emerging parts of the world. And so that's why I'm pretty honored to be at this conference speaking to you too. Having said that, I'm going to start with you, Morris. Let our audience in to 
your business, start the story wherever you like. Maybe a pivotal point in the past that set you up for the success, frankly, that you now enjoy as an owner of a business, an operator of a business, and an employer of people. I one day sat down in the U.S. I migrated to the U.S. because of the same civil war back in Liberia then. What year was this? It was back in 2001 when I migrated to the U.S. And I lived there because of the civil war at the time in Liberia. And one day after living in America for about 15 years, one day I saw the bracket uh, in Liberia called a fire call. I said, wow, this bracket looks similar to the one that is used in Liberia for cooking. And I doubt it the way this bracket looks. I don't think the way people mine or process charcoal in Liberia, they would like to do that or doing it the same way here in the U.S. That led me to have gone to the factory. And when I saw the raw material that is being used in the U.S. to produce bracket, you know, or fire coal, I realized it's a waste problem. In Liberia, imagine the wood dust from the carpenter shop. You know, imagine the coconut dye and an organic material for that matter. And that just stimulated me and said, whoa, need to go back home. And not only making profit, but try to make a, di- a difference by saving the environment, especially the rainforest in Liberia. Because 98% of the household in Liberia uses charcoal. And the only source they have, is cutting down trees. And I mean, I need not to tell you, when we're talking about climate change and global warming, it's a serious and huge issue to the world. And we just, for the last two years, we've been very passionate about it. And Green Gold Liberia now will look at ourselves, yes, we're for profit, but we'll look at ourselves in the context of social enterprise, entrepreneur. So I'm going to ask you in a while to give us, you know, some numbers, how you are keeping score of your progress in your company, you know, the size of your business, your plans to grow and that stuff of that nature. But I want to turn to you, Iham, give us a similar introduction to you as an entrepreneur. How is it you end up on the shores of this beautiful dike here in Amsterdam talking to me about your, your entrepreneurial experience? What's your story? So I will give you a brief about my story. It's a very simple, funny, sad in some, si- some sides of it. I started in Syria. I'm a civil engineer. I got a master's degree in steel structure. Started in Syria like a normal engineer. I had a, f- a small factory. Started to work with the steel structures. Uh, one year after uh, setting everything, okay, one year uh, the war came to my country. I was uh, forced to leave my country. So I moved uh, to Libya, started another company, started another connection, uh, starting a new stuff there. Uh, we worked for two years for very, very, we had a very good uh, work. Uh, we had a project in all over Libya. What did you do? Uh, we, go, we do steel structures like the warehouses, factory. It's all made of steel columns and beams. It's uh, for industrial, uh, it's industrial buildings. So this is our uh, field, uh, work uh, field. So uh, after moving to Libya, we have a good uh, market, very good market. Two years, everything is now is established. The war came again to Libya. Now for the second time, I had the second war. I, I, I had to leave everything back and moved to Turkey for the third time. So I lost two factories until now and started the third one. In, in Turkey now everything is going uh, well. We are going from small factory to not a big, but a medium factory. We are uh, making new connections, uh, hiring a new staff. For now, I think for me everything is going well and I hope in the future we will be bigger and bigger as I think. 
So I um, uh, the one thing uh, you and Morris have in common is is the R word that people often use to describe people who are forced to leave their country of choice or the country of residency. In your case, both the countries you were born to and then later, in your case, I am the country you decided to relocate to. The R word, of course, is refugee. You can't stand that word. Tell me why. Uh, sometimes uh, it's a uh, refugee. Sometimes refugee needs some support. He needs uh, the host country. He needs help. He needs food. He needs water. He needs uh, to be safe. But for my uh, case, uh, I don't. Uh, it's 100% uh, suitable because uh, when we go to uh, the host country, we started the companies there. We had the staff. We have some employees. So maybe we we give something new to the country we went to. We started a new business. So maybe a refugee. I don't hate this word. I don't have a problem. But maybe it's not suitable. I'm I'm so I'm supporting the the country that I go to. I make export and import. At least it's good for the economy of the host countries. For this reason, I feel that refugee is not suitable in this place, especially in this place. So, Morris, what is your your take on the framing of a word like refugee? What it's come to mean to you as someone who's had to experience what many of us imagine when we hear the word? How how do you frame it for yourself? And and what would you like people who use the word quite lightly, who perhaps haven't had your experiences? What would you like them to know? about that word, what comes to mind? The fight of the battle for me, like uh, any other individual for that matter, we experienced civil war crisis that caused us to flee our country. And uh, the fight of the matter, we formed this new community. Uh, you know, we're fortunate at the time to move in the US. And we got starters. We started to contribute to the economy. And believe me, uh, issue of refugee, yes, I felt that I was seeking refuge, and, you know, in another place. Um, the nomenclature, yes, it matters, like someone would say, asylum seeker and all those stuff. But once you live right, do it right, you know, you have the status and you will now graduate from that level. That look, you're no longer refugees or an asylum seeker now that you have gotten status. And I think that's where uh, someone would say, oh, no, I don't want to hear that name again. But the reality in the past was truly you are seeking refuge. Now that you have found refuge and you made yourself relevant in the community, you would now you feel offensive when you you know refer if someone referred to you as refugees. But for me, I don't see any really any difference. Look, I kind of understand it in the sense that I mean, I I'm a diasporan. I'm not living in my country of birth. Zimbabwe is a slightly different situation. I think it's fair to say, in my case, I'm not entirely economically positioned to move back to my home country. I don't think of myself as a refugee. I wouldn't consider the crisis in my country as one that mirrors the countries you are from. But I would take exception to any word that looks to minimize my role in actually adding value to any given community or, or country. I see myself as a global citizen. I see myself as a meaningful taxpaying uh, resident of South Africa. And I think for that reason, definitions are important. And I think that's why we do the podcast. I imagine that in many parliaments of the, of the Western world or global north, the word refugee has become synonymous with things that aren't represented by the two of you sitting in front of me. And for that reason, I think it's worth addressing. Does that make sense? Yes, truly. Truly, it makes sense. It makes sense. Like you look at yourself, like you say, truly, you are a global citizen, you know? Absolutely. So now, back to a question I set up earlier on. Give us a sense of the scale of the business you built. We have some idea of where IHAM is taking this, this factory. I'm going to come back to you, IHAM, because I have quite a few questions about 
all the things that you would learn from one factory to the next, adjusting for context and culture, applying your skill set and your business entrepreneurship skills in different markets. I'm really curious about that. But Morris, give me a sense of the size of your business. How many people are you employing? Are you happy to share some sense of the revenue you're generating or the profit and and your aspirations in terms of its growth? Thank you. Um, We stay at a start-up stage. After two years, it's been real difficult. Uh, I can tell you, like I told you, when I first wanted to become so passionate about going back to Liberia for the U.S. to do this business and try to see how I can contribute to help deforestation in Liberia, I did not really think about the matter. And you would not believe it. I went cash in my early retirement for 1K from the U.S. and took on this money. And I said, hey, I need to go back home. And it like I want to take in an, a million dollar investment and initially putting in my own $200,000 into this business. So we are just far off yet for where we want to achieve. Now that we producing products, now that people can see and feel, for example, like the government. And, you know, beginning to see international NGO like that's how we are here today with this Ignite conference. Because now that because when we went back, we start to tell them, look, this is what we want to do. Now they say it's not possible. How can you produce charcoal from agriculture waste? They never believe it. But then based on our own effort, our own innovation, we went pressing on. And after two years, we are at the point of not producing, even the public getting to see our product. So we far off yet, but believe me, it's a promising business because the charcoal business in Liberia, when we did the statistic or the research, is a 50 million US dollar gross domestic product. And we are the only alternative charcoal company. Imagine it. And you know, so it's a huge opportunity out there. But we have not gotten a cent from the government, we have not gotten a dime from the banks. And you know, it's all our own private initiative. Thank God for Ignite. When they came to our facility, we talked to them, and they came and saw what we are doing. They say, hey, you need help, and that's how we are at this conference. So from Syria to uh, Libya to now Turkey, give me a sense of all the things that you've iterated. It's obviously an uncomfortable situation. You wouldn't have chosen to move from one market to another in the way you did. But what would you say you learned each time you had to up and transplant yourself? What sort of advantages do you think that provided you as an entrepreneur, do you think? Uh, starting a company for the first time, it's very hard. Starting again for the second time, it's easier. For the third time, it's easier. It's all hard. But I mean uh, the concept that I need uh, to think too much for the first time, how will I provide workers, materials, connections. The second time, it's easier. The third time, it's easier. So I'm not uh, going to pretend that uh, every time I suffer the same. It's all, it's all, it's exhausting, it's really exhausting, but uh, you have a very good, a very experience after all of that. Now, if you tell me to start any project, I feel it's not uh, impossible. But if you ask me at the first time I was in Syria, everything was hard for me. Now, I have a good experience, I have uh, good connections, I have, uh, I know how to start a business in a, in a new country. I know how to, to know the law, I have to study the laws, uh, the, the, everything regarding the accounting system in each country. So I, I know what is the hard point that I should uh, f- finish first. So moving from country to another, give you an experience, how to think about this country, 
how to open the locks for this country. So moving a country to another makes your uh, experience bigger. And I think um, uh, um, I have a good experience from moving to three countries. And this is good for me now. Now I have a good experience as an entrepreneur and as I am still young. I'm not uh, that old. And so what's the golden thread? When I think of these three markets, I have a hard time imagining any similarities. Um, there are probably some, not least perhaps religion, maybe. But what golden threads would you say you observed as an entrepreneur from a business standpoint servicing these markets? Uh, the main obstacle when you go to any country that you are a stranger. Whatever you do, you have a very, let's say your, your products is the best quality. But the customer comes to you and looks, he will give you money, uh, especially we, we, we sell uh, buildings. It's not a small uh, quantity of money, it's not thousand dollars. We're talking about hundred thousands. How will he trust you? If you are not trustable or you are a stranger, even if you are the best in the world, but you are a stranger finally, the customer will think he will t take the money and run away. He should trust you first. After that, he will buy from you. The hardest thing that we faced to let the customers trust us by giving a very good product, by helping them in something is out of our scope, helping them how to start the project, give them some plans, some strategic plans for their factories. We have extra services in order to be able to sell our products. This is the main idea that we were working more than our duty. Something out of our duty, but we had to do it in order to gain our customers' trust. This is the main idea. And so, Morris, you represent a cherished ideal. The idea that African diasporans who are flung all over the world for whatever reason that those individuals ought to occupy the front line of development, economic development in, in African countries. You represent that ideal in, in some respect. Talk me through the psychology of, of someone like you who moves to the US, is positioned quite comfortably, but doesn't feel comfortable in that and seeks to go back. I, I suppose I'm saying there are easier ways to make money, <laughs> but you choose this. Talk me through your psychology and maybe help people who might be in your position but can't really bring themselves to imagine following in your footsteps. The thing, like I say, entrepreneurship is something like it gotta be in your DNA. I went to school in Liberia, graduated from college, started to do business. Due to the Civil War, I had to flee. And when I went abroad, I got a status, like you already said, I was very comfortable, wife, kids, all going to college, and all was very good. But that DNA of mine kept triggering me, look, you need to go back home. You are more needed back home. And you know, because the sad thing about Liberia is that Liberians do not control the economy. They leave the economy to strangers, you know. And as a result, you know, Liberians feel that they cannot be a businessman. So for me, I say I will be one of the exceptions. You know, I have to make a difference by going back home and make a difference, support the economy. And it's about something I would say it should be part of your DNA. You got to love what you're doing. You got to be passionate. Like I say, yeah, money, yes, it's good, but it's something that you got to make a difference in life. Look, Mother Teresa, Martin Luther King, all the big names that you've heard in the past, it was not like they were looking and saying, you know, money, and money is not all. Like, if you're waiting for money, you know, or you're looking for comfort, or, you know, you would never want to leave what you're doing or where you are to move on to another, you know, situation. And the sad thing about Liberia is there's an economy that is not being supported. 
you know, SME. So if you prepare to say you want to venture in there, be prepared to take your risk because you're not getting any support from the authority. You're not getting support from any family members like they will tell you, hey, you go ahead. But once you believe in yourself and you believe in anything to do, like Christians, Muslims, we look up to our you know, creator with faith that today I'm going out and you know, God is protecting me. So those are the belief for me. I put in my, you know, the back of my mind, I said I need to go back to Liberia and to help make a difference. And believe me, after two years, we're beginning to see light at the end of the tunnel. You know, it's a huge, huge opportunity. But come this opportunity, it's a big challenge for sure. And, you know, because it's a huge sacrifice. We're talking about infrastructure is out. When you're talking about starting up a business, there's no public utility like electricity. You got to first of all think about getting a generator to run your fire trade and all the challenges. But if you think about it, believe me, you would not make any difference or make any move. So like I asked myself, if the Chinese can come from all the way to China, come and set up a business here in Liberia, you know, and taking this capital back home, why not me? Why I can't do it here when I'm supposed to be, as a citizen, you know, of this country, a moral responsibility to make a difference. Right now, I have about 18 persons employed, you know, and just imagine if you multiply by a household in Liberia, we're talking about almost 90 to 100 persons being affected, and, you know, lives being affected positively, you know. So I want to touch on something you, you alluded to, this idea that the general psyche of citizens in Liberia is that we need outsiders to, to basically create industries to serve our needs. Give me some idea of what you think would need to change, perhaps in the education system, perhaps in the way we socialize our children, perhaps in the attitudes we nurture as communities, in the way we carry ourselves. Speak to your countrymen and women in terms of that. Perhaps as a policymaker listening, educators, innovation architects who are thinking about interventions in the education space. How do we get more people thinking the way you think? Like we say in Liberia, Liberians take everything but risks. It's just part of our culture. Liberians do not like to take risks. You know, they will feel comfortable. They feel that doing business is for foreigners. And that's how, since 1847, Liberia got its independence. Foreigners have been controlling our economy. So it's all the way deep, deeply seated. If you tell a guy now, hey, you just graduated from college, come here and manage this business, he would not feel comfortable. You prefer wearing a nectar to go and sit behind your desk to work for someone, you know, and that's just being it, you know, they do not like to take risks. So for us, we want to prove exceptional, and that's why we have taken on the responsibility that Gringo Liberia is not just about profit. We are like a social enterprise, and we try to visit learning institutions, visit uh, kids, you know, trying to tell them, mentor them that, look, it's not only about you going to school. Yes, you can go to school to become an engineer, but if you manage your firm as an engineer, you are doing business, you are developing an entrepreneurial you know, spirit. You know? So that's one of the things for us at Green Gold, we try to do it. It's a long shot, but always after anyone. Thousand miles always start with the first one, and that's what we're doing in Liberia. Thank God that the guys around, people, the government, you know, like I told you from the beginning, there's nothing like any support for SME. Just erase it. If you want to wait for government to tell you, oh, there's an SME funding out there, go and get it because you have started this business, you will never get it. But go for it. Other guys will be there, you know, to come. And look, after two years, now, for example, the Ignite Fund, Spark, 
came by, you know, and they're willing to help us, you know. And sometimes it's about being ready when an opportunity arises. So give me a sense of... We're taking a quick break to tell you a little more about Spark, the presenting sponsor of the series. Spark is a Dutch NGO with a difference. Since being founded by two Dutch students in the 1990s to stem the degradation of higher education in the Balkans, the organization has grown to deliver expert services in 15 of the world's most vulnerable countries, including Libya, Liberia, and Syria. Spark bridges the gap between higher education and entrepreneurship by providing scholarships to displaced people, catalyzing student participation through civic leadership, and providing entrepreneurs with the support they need to succeed. To learn more about how Spark is rebuilding futures through vocational education and SME growth programs in the Middle East, as well as North and Sub-Saharan Africa, visit sparkonline.org. That's spark-online.org. And now, back to the conversation. In your case, uh, I am, you have two failed businesses under your, your, your belt. Now, granted, the failure wasn't your fault, but they're failures nonetheless. That must work on a man's mind, a woman's mind. So share with us how you've confronted and dealt with failure and used it to, to spur you forward because you had lots of reasons not to carry on, I imagine, or, or, or maybe you didn't. Let me into your head a bit. Uh, after, uh, after each failure, as you say, when I am forced to leave everything and start from zero, you, you have two solutions. Well, the first solution is to sit back and cry. The second solution is to stand on your feet. When you feel that you have a good experience and you can be successful in the future, you can't leave it. You have a dream. You have a dream. You can't leave that dream. I had to start again and again, as I told you. I have to start again. Uh, maybe the first fail, uh, I started normally, no problem. The second one, I was exhausted. I had uh, to have uh, to take a rest for one month, but then we started again. But I told you, no other solutions. Leave everything and cry and uh, and think about the past, or to look for the future. For me, I was only looking for the future. I needed to be to have a very big company and steel structures. I want to have customers from all over the world. I need to have a very good team of experience and professionals. So when you feel that you have the power, when you feel that you have the, the experience to do that, eventually you will not stop. You will not leave your dream and sit back. So every time I fail or the country fails me, that I, the host country that fails me, I start again. And in the future, if anything happens, I will start again, I think. I will not uh, sit back. <laughs> what, what is your workaround in terms of the team that you build to support you? Because you're obviously the star of this team. It's quite obvious. I mean, this wouldn't be happening without you being the glue and the instigator each time you start again. What's your formula for surrounding yourself with the right people in different countries? Yes, uh, the main idea that uh, when you say I am Syrian, after the war, it means that you have friends in all over the world. This is, this is the, the one benefit from the Syrian war, is that wherever you go, you have Syrians. So whenever I go, I have uh, some friends, maybe in the past, maybe in the college, maybe. So I contact them, trying uh, to rebuild my, uh, my stuff. It's also, it goes step by step. Someone is good in other country, I bring him, uh, we, he takes a good salary. Maybe I have from other country, other cities. But finally, uh, Syrians in, in, all, in all other countries, they left Syria. We have millions out of Syria. So I can rebuild my team maybe in, in, in any country that I wish to start again. 
Do you think that's a culture that was already ingrained in, in, in Syrian culture? Is this a function of dealing with a bad situation? Are Syrians culturally geared towards collaborating with each other regardless of where they are in the world? Or is this a new thing? I'll give you a general idea about the Syrian people. Syrian people are hardworking people. Normally, they work 12 hours a day. They don't uh, have a problem. They work on Sunday. They work every day. They like the work. Even uh, I am from an industri industrial city. It's called Aleppo. It's the biggest industrial city in Syria. So they like industry. They work 12 hours. They don't have any problem. Uh, for that, uh, my team is always supporting me. Not I am supporting him. He's, he's supporting me because they are hardworking. They like their job. And uh, they are professional in what they do. How big is your team? Uh, once I was in Libya, it was 100, 110. Now it's small, it's about a 25 person. But uh, it's growing. Year by year, it's uh, growing. We are moving in small steps, but we want to, to make it fixed steps, not uh, to have any failure again. We are working step by step in order that the third time, it should be, we should be accurate. We, we don't have other chances. So we are working step by step, building ourselves, building our team. And uh, it's going well, I think. It's going well. And so each time you start up, what are the sources of your finance? We've heard Morris say that <laughs> he cashed out his retirement fund. Uh, what did you do to set up the first time and each subsequent time? What, who did you tap? Did you tap this network you're talking about? Yes, uh, funding for the first time was easy because uh, I also, it's a family business, we had some fundings for that. For the second time, it was okay, not a problem. For the third time, it was a disaster <laughs> because you, you lost most of the savings in the two other countries. And now you start from zero, from zero funding, zero stuff, uh, zero connections, zero everything. So we start, as I told you, small steps. But uh, uh, since we have uh, good customers from Africa and customers from uh, Iraq, Qatar, since we have uh, uh, good connections from the last uh, two factories, we started uh, maybe fast, not that long, Kenny. Morris, talk to me about your relationship with your community, um, the Liberian diaspora, the Liberians that never left, and of course the Liberians who have recently, like you, chosen to return. What are the dynamics of that community? What do you like? What's praiseworthy? What needs to change? What would you like to see happen? The fight of the border is, especially I talk about the diaspora. Um, the guys, some of them, you know, not all, but some of them, when they heard about us planning, trying to go back home, they come and talk to you. You say, are you crazy? What are you going back to that place for? I said, that your country, you're talking about your birthplace, you're calling it that place? You know, and sometimes we have the argument, they cannot, they could not convince me. You know, I tell them, I say, hey, Liberia need you most. But like we we'll say, you cannot get everybody to think like you. But Liberians in the diaspora have this opportunity in terms of education, finances, and all the stuff. But practically, like, they abandon their country. You know, in a sense, no more wars, you know, in Liberia. Liberia has huge opportunity that when you get to Liberia and you're not too careful, you will become spread out, you know, trying to jump on everything, you know. But because we do not see it, or it is not in our DNA to think that they will develop entrepreneurship, foreigners who come visiting see it that they never return to go back home. They say, no, this is an opportunity, I should jump on it, you know. And as for the folks whom they are willing, they want the opportunity. Right now, the whole uh, unemployment, you're talking about 90%. 
you know, the young man wake up in the morning, he doesn't have any kind of skill, no opportunity for him, you know. So when they see you in their community, trying to create an opportunity for them, they are very supportive. You know, they are supported the least opportunity you get. You won't believe it when we first started this company. We had about 17 volunteers that went on for 120 days, you know, 120 days before pay. They come up, clean up the place, they're trying to build. They say, look, because this factory, you're bringing in our community, and I know it's a source of employment, we will support you, you know, and that's how it been. So they are like looking for opportunity. So it really gave her, you know, real good, you know, sense that truly what we're doing, you know, it's not just about profit or trying to accumulate wealth and all this stuff. But for me, I'm very passionate about trying to give back to my community. Even if I give all, even if I give all, it doesn't matter to me because believe me, if you accumulate all the wealth, you get 100 horses. How many rooms you sleep in? Uno one. If you get 500 beds, you can only sleep on one bed. And that's my belief in this world. If you die today, you get a million dollars. They're not going to put a million dollars in your casket. So for me, let me make an impact while I'm living so that tomorrow, you know, I will say yes. I play my part, you know, and I play it, you know, in a passionate way, you know. What's your relationship with your home country? It's, it's, uh, it continues to be a sore spot, I'm sure. Uh, I can only imagine uh, having to deal with the ongoing trauma of seeing my country of birth like go through such a hard time. What is your current relationship and perhaps your hope for what the next chapter of history might, might show for Syria and how you might be a part of it? Unfortunately, that when you see the country that you lived in now, it's uh, destroyed and uh, it's in a very bad situation. Uh, obviously, in the near future, in the next one or two years, it will stay in the same situation. Because as you see, it's a very complicated situation now in Syria. And whenever I think about Syria, I feel sad because this is my home country. I, I wonder when I'm going to go back. But I know it's very hard in the near future, maybe in the near six or ten, ten years, because it's destroyed. No electricity, no water. Uh, it's not alive there. It's not alive. And also the bad uh, thing that all my relatives, most of the, my relatives are now out of Syria. So when I uh, plan to go back, I will be alone, maybe in my country. This is a bad idea, but I, I have to think about it. And I'm so you you still you do plan to go back though? For the near future, no. But I mean, in say the future, you imagine? For sure, for sure, I will be back to my country, but in the far future. For now, it's hard uh, until it settles down, until it's safe, until we have uh, resources for everything, until that we can start uh, our work again. But uh, as I told you, in the far future, not now, for sure. When, when I say home, how, how do you define that for yourself right now in the state you're in? Uh, it's, uh, it's the place I love. It's the place I want my children to live. But we left it. We left our home. Now uh, we are living in a strange country for us. They are not our people. They are Finally, it's not my country. But you have to find a solution for yourself. You have to go on. You should not stop. You have to accept the, this situation. And for me, I think I'm living a good life now in Turkey. And uh, the country is good. The government is good there. So I'm happy in Turkey now. 
But sure, my country is my, the point that I'm looking forward in the future that I'm going back in the future. So I have only a couple more questions for you both. Well, I'd like you to factor in on some of the policy or the political narratives that uh, influence the way more well-resourced parts of the world try and intervene or aid lesser developed parts of the world. You know, so Morris, you've lived in the US, arguably the world's biggest disperser of foreign aid. You've lived in a society that has attitudes towards what we need as a continent. What do you make of that rhetoric? What would you like to fix? Speak to America, speak to what you're exposed to here in Europe, and or even some of what you experience dealing with these people, some well-meaning, some less well-meaning, uh, interacting with you in, in Liberia. It's glary for me. I can tell you the experience, just practical. Liberia, before and during the Civil War, they had so much aid that came in. The latest one was recently in 2014 when the Ebola crisis you know, uh, came about. And almost a billion dollars aid went into that economy. But today, go there. You don't see the fight because those that are bringing the aid, taking it out. They practically taking it out. The guy is coming. He said he's bringing in $20 million, you know, for this kind of program. But just his salary within that $20 million, he's making almost $100,000 a day. So what effect will he really, really, you know, have on the beneficiary, you know? And as a result, our people being entrenched in this mentality of just receiving, and they say, oh, NGO, non-governmental organization. And over the years, over the years, they tell you, oh, we brought in $20 million. We brought in $50 billion you do not see the effect. And I think, for example, the innate role of Nanda sensing to say, hey, instead of keep giving the guy fish, let us te teach them how to fish. You know, and with this entrepreneurial development, if Ignite can really get the, on a global platform, that would be really, really good because it doesn't require rocket scientists to say you want to do business. If you just the guy is already doing business. All he needs would be that support and distinguishing his little, you know, salary from that of the operation of the business. Those basic, you know, those basic. And that's what uh, Spark in Liberia, I've seen them doing, going all the way down to the grassroots. Because once you get those, you know, basic, you truly giving the guy independence, you know, financial independence. Because I don't care how much aid you bring to Africa or to Liberia, you will not see nothing, no effect. And the thing about aid is so sad, you won't believe it. If you go out to those aid agencies, those INGO, the International Non-Governmental Organization, you say, look, this is a concept paper. I want to open, I want to develop this factory. I want to produce this, this I have this innovative idea. And this is what I want to do. They tell you, oh, sorry, well, the funding we have, it cannot go for that purpose. And, you know, and sadly, you just sit and sit and sit and you die with your dream. You know, that's the situation. So I hope this time they can retail or corporate this whole aspect of aid going to Africa because it doesn't make sense. You're not helping us because those that carry the aid, believe me, their salary in there, they're bringing the capital right out of the country. Infrastructure remains the same and we do not really see the effect. And the worst one would be that mentality. 
because the guys now in Liberia, over the years, keep seeing the aid, you know, coming, and they just feel that they would not survive without AIDS, you know. So they wait for a job, international NGO to come create jobs, instead of supporting private sector initiatives that will create more jobs, you know. So I hope and pray that Ignite, you know, and Spark will take on this initiative, like what they're doing now, when I listened this morning at conference hall, working with the Syrians, you know, that fled their country, trying to empower them, you know, that's, that's the way to go, because once you do your business, you are truly independent, then going out there, giving the guy aid, giving aid, you're not helping him, you are not helping him at all. So I would say again that the global community need to rethink, need to retell their whole concept of, you know, supporting or giving aid to Africa. And I think our governments need to do a better job of representing our interests. I can certainly speak to some policymakers who I've observed, uh, some I've spoken to directly, who are, you know, are starting to appreciate the implications of taking a quick fix or a, a quick win you know, in, term, in PR terms, are starting to see that there's a real tax on our long-term ability. To, to gain true independence and financial stability, economic progress. So I, I think it's a two-way thing. I do think that while the resources are centered in, in certain parts of the world, there might be a moral obligation for them to, to redirect this, especially given how we were part of their beneficiation without actually properly being remunerated. But in time, we also need to, we need decent leadership that will demand better and, and demand better deals. So you already gave me a sense of what you feel on this topic earlier on. You know, speak to a policymaker listening right now. What do you want them to know? Uh, I want them to know that when you have a hole in the street, you don't build the hospital beside the hole that to cure the people that having uh, accidents. You have to close this hole in the street. For, for the policy makers now, they see the war, they see the problem that uh, the refugees, the Syrian, for my, ex, for my case, the Syrian refugees, they don't want to find like the cure, the final solution. They are always focusing on some solution that's not supportive. Maybe to provide them food, shelter, this is not the solution. The solution is to be political from the highest levels, to end this problem and everybody will be back to his country and he will uh, manage his own things, not to be dependent on someone to, f to feed him. It's not, a, it's not a way of living. So you have to work on the high levels. Uh, countries should uh, work together to find a uh, final solution to our country and end this uh, massacre, end it finally. And I think they know the solution, but nobody wants to, to do it. That's my, my idea about that. I, I agree. Some of these things aren't rocket science. Um, and I've just come to appreciate that people will typically do what's in their selfish interest. And that's an unfortunate truth about humanity that I, I, not a lot of people like that sentiment because people like to think we're inherently good. But I, 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 I feel different. I think th there's a brokenness that we need to address as humanity. Nevertheless, that's just me. Guys, in closing, before I thank you for being on the show, you guys have provided such incredible insight. Do you guys have children? Do you have children, Iham? Yes, I have one. You mentioned you have children, uh, Morris, uh, you, but yours are quite grown, aren't they? I have four kids. The youngest being six years old. And like I told you, it's a huge sacrifice. Living wife and family home of a six-year-old guy. And you say you're moving back to Africa, you know, it's a big challenge. But, you know, 
initially I want to just thank her. I'm sure one day she will listen to this podcast to know that, hey, thank her for the support because if it were not her, you know, say, hey, darling, that's why you believe in, go for it. And that's where we are today. So I want to really say, yes, I have a family that's very supportive of my dream. And, you know, and if it were not because of her, and, you know, Mrs. Orita Kaludoba, I want to say thank you. Thank you so much. So you've already preempted what I wanted to ask you. I, I wanted you to just focus on your, your children for a bit. I, I, I don't have children yet. Um, I, I do find that um, when I ask this question often, it does help the person I ask to just strip away all the non-important stuff down to the most important thing. So your children might not be at the age where they have the patience to listen for 45 minutes to what daddies are talking about. When, but when they do, I want you to to tell them one thing that sums up your experience, what you're learning. I don't want to preempt what that is. But uh, Ayham, what's that one thing? The one thing that they should do, they should be well-educated and uh, to work hard. And after that, they will find a solution for their lives. You, you're talking work ethic all the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I hope so. Because this is the, the, the main thing that will put you on the successful, uh, successful way. You will find the successful su- success in this way. You should be well-educated and work hard and everything will come after that. You, you already got your, your say in, but uh, the one thing, one thing, reduce it to one thing that you want for your offspring, man, when they listen to this. I tell them every day that no one will realize your dream for you. You know, go after your own dream because if you depend on someone, it will never work. So, like, I always tell them, go after your dream. And, like, education, yeah, is the basis. Keep focus on it. And once you are educated, you'll be able to go and do whatever you want to do. But anything that you believe in life, go for it. Go for it. Don't stop. Go for it. Morris Dugba of Green Gold Liberia. Ayham Maksud of Al Maksud for Steel Construction. Thank you both for being on the African Tech Roundup. I am honored, gentlemen, to have had this opportunity to chat with you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you very much, sir. Thank you. Thank you. And in night 2018, thank you. All right.